Tonight's reading is taken from the book of James, chapter 5, verses 1 to 12. Now listen, you rich people, weep and wail because of the misery that is coming on you. Your wealth has rotted and moths have eaten your clothes. Your gold and silver are corroded. Their corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. You have hoarded wealth in the last days. Look, the wages you failed to pay the workers who mowed your fields are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. You have lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened yourselves in the day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the innocent one who was not opposing you. Be patient then, brothers and sisters, until the Lord's coming. See how the farmer waits for the land to yield its valuable crop, patiently waiting for the autumn and spring rains. You too be patient and stand firm, because the Lord's coming is near. Don't grumble against one another, brothers and sisters, or you will be judged. The judge is standing at the door. Brothers and sisters, as an example of patience in the face of suffering, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. As you know, we count as blessed those who have persevered. You have heard of Job's perseverance and have seen what the Lord finally brought about. The Lord is full of compassion and mercy. Above all, my brothers and sisters, do not swear, not by heaven or by earth or by anything else. All you need to say is a simple yes or no, otherwise you will be condemned. This is God's word. Good evening, everyone. My name's Phil. I'm the assistant minister here. The, uh, this morning, Matt was telling us the, uh, the, the COVID warnings at the beginning of the service. They feel a bit to him like uh, the things they say when you get on board an aeroplane room are those, uh, you know, the, the warnings and notices no one listens to. I think the, the readings from James, they really ought to be prefaced by adopt the brace position. I mean, it is pretty brutal stuff as we go through this letter, isn't it? Let's pray to God, uh, not that he would help us to brace, but that he would help us to open ourselves to what he has said. Father God, please, by your spirit, open our hearts to hear, to believe, and to obey your word. Amen. Power corrupts. Absolute power corrupts absolutely. So said Lord Acton. Sadly, we don't have to look too far to see the truth of that borne out. Think of the government of Myanmar brutally, murderously oppressing those who protest. Think of the streets of London and the desperate news in recent weeks of men using physical strength to oppress, attack women. Sadly, even church ministers using the power of their position to abuse and manipulate. Well, how should we respond as Christians? How should we respond when we see oppression, injustice, suffering taking place in our workplace or on the street? in our church, society, home? How respond when we suffer ourselves? Well, James 5 is going to tell us that we have a God who hates oppression and will one day judge it. We don't see much sign of that now, but God has promised that the day is coming, the date is set, when he will judge all oppression and wickedness. 
And so our casual indifference to the suffering of others just won't do. We're also going to see that when we face suffering ourselves, well, James calls us be patient, be patient, trusting in the promise of God's justice and God's blessing. Okay, verse, verse 1 to 6 of chapter 5. Oppressors will be judged by God. Now we'll see the mood shifts quite markedly at the beginning of chapter 5. Uh, the end of chapter 4 was also addressed to wealthy people, uh, warning them not to proudly boast in, in their plans. But we move from criticism, really, to condemnation as we get into chapter 5. Now listen, you rich people, weep and wail because of the misery that is coming upon you. No longer is he addressing the, the wealthy within the church. He's now looking at the ungodly rich in society. And he just generalizes. He just calls them the rich because so often the rich misbehave and use their power wrongly that he doesn't, he doesn't bother distinguishing between the, the wicked rich and, and the righteous rich. Although some righteous people are wealthy in the Bible, but sadly too often riches and wickedness just seem to go together in the Bible. And these, uh, these verses are pretty brutal. But you think, why, why on earth would the rich weep and wail and go into mourning? Why would the ancient world's Jeff Bezos be tearing his hair and ripping his clothes? Because, well, because although life is sweet now, there is misery coming. And the misery that is coming, verse 1, the misery that is coming on you is coming not because they have lots of money, but because of what they're doing with their money. We're going to see three things. They're condemned for hoarding, they're condemned for withholding, and they're condemned for indulging. So he's not, he's not condemning them for being rich, but for how they're misusing, selfishly misusing the money for themselves. Okay, firstly, they hoarded. Verses 2 to 3. Your wealth has rotted and moths have eaten your clothes. Your gold and silver are corroded. Their corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. You have hoarded wealth in the last days. Now he's not speaking literally. He knows gold doesn't rust. He's telling them what God sees. He's saying, you see your great piles of gold and silver and you think, I have solid, lasting security. I have comfort. I have power right here. But God views it spiritually. And he doesn't see enduring gold he sees the gold as if it's well it's actually it looks to him like a pile of food you've hoarded far more than you need and now it just rots and that fetid stinking pile with a stench well it's your guilt it testifies against you it testifies that you've hoarded wealth in the last days now the last days is just the period in history after Jesus has poured out the Holy Spirit and before he returns. It's the time when he could come back at any point. That's what the last days is. And he said, look, that's the time for, for investing in heavenly riches, for, for giving money to, to see the spread of the gospel to people who don't yet know Jesus and, and to help the poor, things that have eternal significance. His warning to us really is that earthly possessions and money, they have a use-by date. We need to remember that. Don't hoard your wealth, your possessions. It's got to use by date. Use it well now before it's too late. Invest for eternity. Two, God is angry with the rich for hoarding wealth in the last days, but worse still than hoarding, they've withheld money from those to whom it was really due. So look again at verse four. 
Look, the wages you failed to pay the workers who mowed your fields are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. You've lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. Now, at the time James is writing, the the land in Galilee, Roman-occupied Galilee, was basically concentrated in the hands of a, a very few wealthy landowners. And the day laborers who worked in their fields were paid each day for their work. They had no savings. There were no food banks or social welfare system to fall back on if they weren't paid. And so if they weren't given their daily pay, their families didn't eat. And that happened an awful lot, apparently, at this point. In fact, it got so bad that there was basically a civil war between AD 66 and 70, between the poor who hadn't been paid properly and the wealthy landowners who'd been withholding the money. Very wicked. No wonder James is angry. And then third, they've indulged. Why is it that the wealthy are withholding this money that's going to be spent on bread? It's well so that they can spend it on caviar and champagne. They are luxuriating in the, in the wine-soaked splendor of their dinner parties, deaf to the cries of the very people who have brought in the money for them, who've worked in their fields till their hands bled. But while they're deaf, God is not. God hears the cry. And in these verses, you can, you can almost hear the distant rumble of thunder as God stirs in his anger. The wages you failed to pay the workers who mowed your fields are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. You've lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You've fattened yourselves in the day of slaughter. The last verse, verse 6, is actually the most ominous of all, this funny little verse. You've condemned and murdered the innocent one who was not opposing you. It's, it's as if James... he. He concentrates all the, all the different poor people who've been oppressed into, into one, he personifies them as one innocent character who hasn't been opposing the rich at all, he's been working for them. And it's deliberately, he's echoing Jesus, the innocent one. I mean, do you remember when, um, when Saul is persecuting the Christians before he becomes the apostle Paul? As he's traveling on the Damascus road, Jesus appears to him in a vision and says to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting? Not them, the Christians, but me, Jesus says. Because Jesus is so tightly identified with you, if you're a Christian, that if someone is oppressing you, they're acting in violence against Jesus. And those people have been fattening themselves in the day of slaughter, James says. If you drive up to, to Norfolk in the autumn when rules permit, don't do uh, a Cummings. Uh, make sure you've got the rules in your favour before you do it. But if you do so, you pass enormous fields on the way up to Norfolk that are, are covered in, these, in big nets, and under the nets are turkeys and geese. And the fields are just covered, they're sort of ankle deep in grain, and the turkeys are just gobbling around, blah, 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 eating, all the, eating all the food happily. What you never see as you drive past is turkeys trying to escape from the net, trying to get out under the sides. I mean, who tries to escape from an all-you-can-eat buffet? But of course, what the turkeys don't realize is that they're not feasting. They're fattening themselves to be feasted on. One day soon... They'll be plucked, and after all their gobbling, they'll be gobbled on Christmas Day. 
And James says, look, the rich people who have withheld this money and spent it all on themselves, they're not feasting, they're fattening themselves for the day of their slaughter. Not Christmas Day, but Judgment Day. Their great wealth and the injustice that fueled it will testify against them on Judgment Day, and they will be punished. Okay, so what does James want us to learn from this first section? Addressed to wicked oppressors who aren't even in the church. I mean, he's speaking to people who aren't here. Well, first, he wants the oppressed to be encouraged. Look at verse 7. The call to be patient, patient in verse 7 is grounded in what he's taught them in verses 1 to 6. Be patient then, literally therefore, in the light of God's promised justice. Be patient. And so he says, look, if you're suffering unjustly, and this applies to you too today, if you're suffering unjustly, know that the great king of the universe, the judge of all people, he hears, he sees, and one day soon he will act. And that is a wonderful encouragement. Second, these verses, I think they warn us not to, not to copy the behavior of the unjust rich. It's easy to think of Philip Green spending obscene amounts on his lavish um, sort of bacchanalian parties while emptying the employees' pension funds. But as easy it is to point the Bible at other people, it's much more useful to ask the question, what about you and me? Now, I really hope that those of you who are in a position to set wages of others, make sure you pay properly those you employ and that you don't withhold payment from those who desperately need the money or use power imbalances to, to drive down what you pay to suppliers. To behave like that is wicked, the Bible seems to say. But the next stage, of course, from actively oppressing is to turn a blind eye to it. Now, once we start getting into the details of, well, what does that look like for you and me? The complexities of life are such that I doubt we would, any of us will agree exactly on what we might do. But we, we mustn't let that be an excuse for doing nothing. God does not like injustice and oppression. And so we ought to think carefully. Who do I work for? What brands do I buy? What investments do I make? That's the negative. And positively, if I have capacity, will I use my voice to speak out on behalf of those who have no voice? Are there particular charities or causes that, that I might get involved in and invest my time into? Now, the focus of what James says here is economic injustice. But God hates all oppression, and we should feel the same. I have to say, I've been pretty challenged as, I, as I've prayed about these verses in the last few days, that I just don't care when it doesn't hurt me, and that's not good enough. And at one thing, this past week or two, there's been lots rightly in the news about uh, oppression of women by men. So let me speak just on this instance, men in the church, do not excuse verbal abuse as banter. Whatever the culture of your office or your friendship groups, don't do it. Do not ever watch pornography. Almost always you're watching women being abused and always, always you're watching women being disgracefully objectified. Don't participate in abuse. And do not turn a blind eye when you see women being mistreated. Be wise, be sensible about you know, who you are and what you know of the situation, but be willing 
to check that the things are okay. Men, we need to do better than has been done. There are all sorts of different ways, but in the light of the news, we need to say that. Um, okay, James now turns from the oppressors to the oppressed, from the rich to the poor. And there are two things that we'll see, and both have to do with patience. Firstly, verses 7 to 9, uh, in the light of God's judgment, when oppressed, be patient, don't grumble. Look with me at verse 7. Be patient then, brothers and sisters, until the Lord's coming. See how the farmer waits for the land to yield its valuable crop, patiently waiting for the autumn and spring rains. You too, be patient, stand firm, because the Lord's coming is near. In other words, in the light of God's gospel promise that he's going to make all that is wrong right, his suffering people should be patient. And we'll see that patience looks like three things in these verses. Uh, verse 7, it's the patience of waiting like a farmer who's planted the crops, and now there's nothing they can do. They've just got to wait for them to grow. Secondly, verse 8, it's patience standing firm like a soldier. The, the, the patience of tenacity and courage when it's, it's frightening and there's physical danger, but I'm not going to give up and run. And then thirdly, in the, in the next section, we'll see it's, it's patience, verse 11, of persevering like a prophet. That is, keeping on speaking God's truth and serving him, even when it costs us. But throughout, patience is not passive. It's an active trust that refuses to, to give up while we wait for God's return. Now, I want to show you something very important um, from Psalm 40 about patience. Often Christians ask, well, if I, if I should be patient when I'm suffering, as the Bible commands, does that mean I shouldn't pray that God would change things? Well, look, at, uh, look on the screen. The, the first and last verses of, of Psalm 40. The psalm begins with David declaring, I waited patiently for the Lord, and then leads to the end, verse 17, you are my God, do not delay. Waiting patiently is not opposed to crying out to God to change things. It's not opposed to saying, God, please hurry up, I cannot hang on much longer. That's not a lack of patience. Patience means I, I cry out to God, but I cling to him while I wait. Now, patience is not contrasted with crying out to God to rescue you, even to rescue me quickly, Lord. What patience is contrasted with here is grumbling. Verse 9, don't grumble against one another, brothers and sisters, or you will be judged. The judge is standing at the door. Not grumbling against their oppressors, you notice, but grumbling against each other. Isn't that so often the case? <laughs> when life is miserable, I'm tempted to indulge in a pity party to look around at others who have it easier and grumble against them. Why have they got it so easy? I do more to serve God than him. I mean, how is it that he can afford a flat on his own and I'm stuck in a miserable house share and I've got a better degree and I serve, I serve more than him? Why am I the one whose relationship is in meltdown? I've been far more godly and she's got happily married. This is just not right. Now, what causes that grumbling against one another when I suffer? Would you remember at the beginning of chapter 4, that long section about pride and humility? And then we've seen a number of, uh, of issues driven by pride, uh, the boastful planning. I mean, it wouldn't be difficult to see how the, the, the oppression of the rich is driven by pride. But here too, 
There is pride. In January, uh, both Jules and I had COVID, but the, the symptoms were different. I had man COVID, much more serious. The, uh, the, uh, I, I could taste and smell fine. Um, Jules had no sense of smell, which was probably a blessing in a house of three boys, um, and no sense of taste either. Same disease, but different symptoms as it happened. Now, we saw last week pride plus success can equal boasting in our plans. And now we see pride plus suffering can equal self-pity and grumbling. Same disease, different symptoms. And when we suffer, whether it's oppression as here or any number of other hardships, pride can lead us to respond with self-pity and grumbling. Now, often the thoughts aren't clearly articulated they they kind of lurk in the darker colder corners of our hearts like a fungus but what the pride is saying is i know that there's suffering in this life but i shouldn't be the one to get cancer be made redundant not find a partner i deserve better than this pride says i know better than god this my life this is not the best way for me to glorify god and to become more like jesus Pride says, I know Jesus had to walk through the path of suffering to get to glory, but my path should be comfort even now. I remember uh, a couple of years back, uh, Mike McGann, who's the treasurer who um, often gets to, um, to stand up here and uh, bring us our finance updates, he went through a really, really tough time. And a number of times I'd ask him, um, how, are you, how are you going, Mike? And he'd smile and say, no pom-pom, uh, which... Sounds like a strange thing. Now, it's not that um, life was so miserable that he was tempted to give it all up and to start a new life as a cheerleader, um, which would have been a strange thing to do. <laughs> uh, it had nothing to do with that. Pom-Pom stood for poor old me, poor old me. He knew the temptation and suffering to grumble. Poor old me, woe is me. Why is it me and not them? Why is it my life that's miserable? And so he said to himself, no pom-pom, no pom-pom. Patient prayer, not grumbling against others. Poor old me, why me, not them? Secondly, when oppressed, be patient like the prophets or um, patiently wait for God's blessing. Verses 10 to 12. Brothers and sisters, as an example of patience in the face of suffering, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. As you know, we count as blessed those who've persevered. You've heard of Job's perseverance and have seen what the Lord finally brought about. The Lord is full of compassion and mercy. This is really important. Another aspect of patience is persevering like the prophets. Now, this shows us patience is not uh, passively, meekly tolerating injustice and just letting it happen. The resigned shrug. The prophets of the Old Testament. They suffered terribly, but they boldly spoke out against the injustice in Israel. They spoke truth to power, no matter the cost. I think of Elijah. He's, a, he's kind of the paradigm prophet in the Old Testament. He's the, the locust-eating, camel-hair-coated man of God. Single-handedly stood up to a nation and its wicked king and queen, Ahab and Jezebel. He called them, repent of your evil and your unjust oppression of the poor. And his reward, well, was to have a reward put on his head and have to run and live in, in the desert by a stream with the only food being roadkill brought to him by ravens. But he did it and he kept doing it because he knew that he would have God's rich reward in the end. 
That brings us to Job. That's why that Job is mentioned here. Because the, the end of Job's life, this man who suffered so horrifically, the end of his life in this world is a picture of what will happen for all God's suffering people in the next world. Do you see what he says? You've heard of Job's perseverance and have seen what the Lord finally brought about. The very end of Job, we, we read after his suffering in Job 42, after Job had prayed for his friends, the Lord restored his fortunes and gave him twice as much as he had before. The Lord blessed the latter part of Job's life more than the former. He had 14,000 sheep, 6,000 camels. No idea what you do with 6,000 camels, but there we go. 1,000 yoke of oxen, 1,000 donkeys. He also had seven sons and three daughters. Busy man, blessed man, and that's what's coming for the Lord's people. Okay, let's ground things as we, as we wrap up. Two things to do in the light of this passage. Share God's hatred. Hold on for God's justice. Share God's hatred. God hates and will judge abuse. All abuse. Whether it's economic, physical, emotional, sexual, spiritual. God loves the poor and the vulnerable and will bring searing judgment on abusers. Now, James is writing to people who have no power to change the system. Christians are a tiny minority. There are hardly any of them, and they have no, no influence. But of course, when you know God is like this, where you do have influence and voice, you'll use it to stand up for those who are voiceless, to seek to end oppression where we can. But what does it mean for those facing injustice or ground down by forms of suffering, where it says, hold on for God's justice? It's not, emphatically not a command to those in abusive situations. God says, grin and bear it. That's the Lord's will. A Christian who trusts in God's sovereignty and whose hope is an eternal life, if they're in a burning building, they will seek to escape. Sensibly so. A Christian who trusts in God's sovereignty and whose hope is in the resurrection, who's in an abusive situation, will look to escape if they can. What this passage is, is an encouragement to those who cannot escape. There is hope. Don't give in to bitter desires for vengeance or self-pitying grumbling against others whose lives are easier. It's also an encouragement to those who just feel demoralized and overwhelmed as we look around the world and see all that is happening. There is hope. The hope of the gospel. See, the promise of the gospel is not in a few years' time there'll be a heavenly anarchy where no one is in power and so no oppression can take place. The promise of the gospel is a king who we can trust with power. You can trust King Jesus because he gave up all of his power to serve and to save you. And when he returns, he will use his power to make right everything that is wrong in this world. And on that day, neither wealth, nor connections, nor intimidation tactics will be enough for those who oppress to escape God's judgment. King Jesus is coming to judge oppressors, and King Jesus is coming to rescue and bless those who have clung to him. And so if you, if you have lived with oppression and abuse in this life, and no one has believed you, then 
One day soon, you will hear the God of the universe publicly vindicate you in a voice that no one, no one can gainsay. If you have found your days on earth have been marked by misery and that, to be honest, it feels like you've limped because of the things that have been done to you and that you've suffered. One day soon, you will find that endless centuries in the new creation when you will dance with ever-increasing delight. And so God calls us, be patient then, brothers and sisters, until the Lord's coming. Let's pray. Our Father God, we, we pray that whether we face oppression ourselves or whether we just grieve as we look out and see the misery that other humans have brought upon one another in this world, we pray that you would help us to share your view your hatred of wicked oppression. And we pray that we would learn to, to hold on with patience, for we trust that you will make all that is wrong right, and that you will judge, and that you will bless. Amen.